We're con continuing our series by faith, looking at the life of Abraham. And again and again, as we've traveled, particularly through the recent chapters of Genesis, we've seen that success for the people of God does not rest on their own ingenuity. It rests on his promise. And we've seen the people of God, we've seen Abraham and Sarah so far try and create shortcuts, engineer outcomes, and write a story which they think would be easier to resolve with their resolution than God's. And many of these recent attempts by Abraham and Sarah to resolve the plot are actually motivated by an effort to, of self-preservation. We all know that feeling, don't we, of wanting to self-protect, self-preserve, protect their own protection and legacy. But these bright ideas that Abraham and Sarah have and these attempts to tinker with the plan of God have the effect of unleashing chaos rather than of bringing order to the story. And in the precious first few words of Genesis 21, we see that in spite of their best efforts sometimes to screw it up, his promise still stands. Often in spite of the best efforts of these heroes of the faith, I love how Lex called them heroes of the faith with a small h, but that the promise still stands. Let's read together Genesis 21, verses one to seven. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said that Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So Abraham and Sarah are a couple with a certain amount of dysfunction at the heart of their marriage. These are not probably people we would want running the marriage course at King's Eastbourne. They have been picked from obscurity and they've been given a promise and they've responded to the initial call of God in faith. But as they've traveled through dangerous territories, they've tried to secure, um, to preserve their own security. And the way they've done that at times is by loaning the other one out. It's Sarah's idea that Abraham sleep with Hagar and it's Abraham who suggests that Sarah should go and join the harem of first Pharaoh and then Abimelech. They've loaned each other out. Their self-protective instincts have kicked in. And repeatedly, they've forgotten their guarantee of safety, that the journey depends on his promise and not on their own survival strategies. And I love the emphasis in this passage. Could we have the verses back up? And it's almost like God is drumming home the point. It says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. He's almost drumming home the point. He's saying, no, this promise doesn't depend on servant girls bearing children for you. And it doesn't depend on trying to placate foreign dictators and foreign rulers. It depends on me. It's my promise to you. Do not forget the promise. 
Hagar cannot be the mum and Abimelech cannot be the dad and the promise of God is preserved in this passage despite their best efforts. Why? Because the promise depends on the promise keeper. Our job is to remember, to remember the promises of God. Remember is a word that's used 231 times in scripture, which is over twice the number of times the word church is used, which just indicates some of its importance. Our job is to remember the promise of God, to bind it to ourselves, and we forget the promise of God at great cost to ourselves, but also at great cost to the people around us. Now, this was brought home to me this summer uh, in the middle of the security queue at Gatwick Airport. We had been called as a family of five out of the land of Eastbourne and into the land of Dordogne in France. We're in the middle of the security queue at Gatwick Airport and Andrew retrieves the passports from his back pocket and we're going to return to the safety of that place to keep passports. He counts the passports. One, two, three, four. <laughs> no, 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 that can't be right. One, two, three, four. No, there's one missing. A passport is missing and we're standing in the middle of the security queue. Cue total panic. So Andrew then tries to retrack his steps, leaving me with the three children in the security queue. He tries to go back to the toilets. Is it possible they've fallen out of his, that passport's fallen out of his pocket there? He, um, he starts frantically making phone calls, at which point I get into a discussion with Sam, our youngest. And Sam says, I know it's an adult passport that's missing. It's definitely an adult. I saw all three children when he looked at them. It's one of you, but I don't know which one. It's one of the adults that's missing. And an idea comes to mind. I'm going to confess this to you right now. The idea. I have, no, 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 not leave him behind. A better idea. <laughs> no. A much better idea. Because it does, it, I, I will admit, it does occur to me that if it's my passport that's missing, Andrew could take the kids <laughs> for a week and I could just have like an amazing spa break. <laughs> so quickly, you'll be glad to know I dismiss this. No, this is a family holiday. All five of us need to go. We need to find the fifth passport. We start to head through security and Sam comes up with some ideas. You, know, you see, he knows that his sister, Anna, has special powers. She has special powers to get us good parking spaces. She has special powers to get us through an airport quite quickly, to get served quickly in a restaurant. And he just looks me in the eyes and he says, will Anna's special powers mean they still let us on the plane? At which point I have to explain to him the power of the passport, that there's no negotiation. We can't talk our way onto the plane and no, Anna's special powers, even they won't get us onto the plane. So we, anyway, we head off through security. Amazingly, just an additional point, not relevant to the text in any way. The security buzzer goes off on Anna to have her um, examined by security, at which point they say, you're gonna have to let go of her hand. And I just, you do not want me to let go of her hand. <laughs> and um, at which point, I think they kind of looked in my eyes and thought, this woman, this woman means business. And uh, we, only, we only had three security people running blocking on the other side. And I was thinking, this holiday has not started well. <laughs> anyway, they, the Gatwick staff quickly take us to the sensory room in Gatwick. And I get a, a vital phone call from Andrew. I found the passport. It was in the taxi. <laughs> So he arrives, 
uh, Andrew Wilson arrives at the sensory room. He says, I found the passport. It's all right. Everything's going to be okay. And I say, okay, where is it? What's his answer? Where's it going to be? In my pocket. <laughs> so I said, if anyone here would like to buy that man a bum bag or something, a more secure place that he could keep passports, that's absolutely fine. But the point is this. It has to be the promise. The promise is the passport. The passport is the promise. I could not negotiate my way onto that plane. I couldn't make a deal. I couldn't say, hey, what Andrew goes, I have the spa break, he travels on my passport. There is no negotiation. The promise is the passport, and the passport is the promise. So we know by this point in the story that these heroes of the faith are deeply flawed, and at times they've forgotten the promise. But what can we learn from their mistakes? How can we avoid making the same ones? Or are we destined uh, to make the same ones again? And one unexpected lesson that we can draw from the life of Abraham and Sarah is the lesson of learning to laugh. Learning to laugh. You see, at the center of this story is a baby whose name Isaac means laughter. And the story of Isaac's arrival is bookended with how to and how not to laugh. The laughs of the flesh and the laughs of the spirit. You see, Genesis 21 is not the first time that Sarah's laughed at the promise. Let's read Genesis 18, return to that 18, 9 to 15. Abraham has just received three messengers from God. And the three messengers have said to him, they say, where is Sarah, your wife? And he says, she's in the tent. So this conversation is happening just outside the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Sarah and Abraham were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She's not having periods anymore. So Sarah laughed at herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I didn't laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, you did laugh. So three messengers have come to visit them, but in this passage it says the Lord himself speaks. Could we have the um, passage back up? Whenever you see in capital letters, the Lord in capital letters, it's Yahweh, it's Y-H-W-H, the Lord, the I am who I am God. So three messengers arrive at the tent, but it's not actually them at this point who's speaking, it is the Lord himself who is speaking. He's speaking to Abraham, the God of heaven and earth, the God who made the stars, the God who made the sky. It's him who's speaking. And he's speaking to Abraham, but he's also speaking to Sarah. They're conversing just outside that tent flap and canvas is thin. And God asks where Sarah is before he starts speaking. He knows where she is, but he asks where she is. He knows Sarah can hear him. And he's speaking to Sarah too. But Sarah responds with a fleshly laugh, a laugh of cynicism. The God of heaven and earth, the Lord, Yahweh, the I am who I am God, is speaking directly to Abraham and Sarah. And she laughs. And he's asked, is anything too hard for the Lord? 
And Sarah's implicit answer in that laugh is to say, yes, this, this, me having a baby this time next year, this is too hard for you. And it t- so God is speaking to Sarah, but he's also listening to her response. How does God respond to her scepticism? The God of heaven and earth, does he strike her down? Does he say, I, the, I am who I am, God has just spoken to you and you've laughed in my face. Does God strike her down? No, he doesn't. He searches her out. He asks that leading question. He says, why? Why did Sarah laugh? And then really gently, just outside the tent, so that Sarah can hear, just inside the tent, he says, this time next year. He repeats the promise. He doesn't strike her down. He repeats the promise despite her laugh of the flesh. You see, Sarah is a woman who's grown really thick-skinned. And she's likely by this point in her life to have been shunned by the people around her for decades. She's grown up in an air-obsessed society, a baby-obsessed society, and she has grown tough. And judging by what Abraham has done at other points in the story and what they've done to each other, she's probably had to look out for herself a fair amount too. This is a thick-skinned woman. Listen, before you get too carried away, um, Sarah is no Bronze Age feminist. You see, this is not a a woman who is good at championing other women. It's not when, when they go low, we go high. It's when they go low, we exile them to the wilderness. Okay? So we know this is a laugh of the flesh. It's a laugh of cynicism. Why? Because she acts on it. She acts on the laugh of cynicism and unbelief when she suggests that Abraham sleep with Hagar to father the child of promise. You see, Sarah is willing to trust God for half of the story, but not for the other half. She's willing to trust God and she acts in faith that Abraham could be a father of nations, but she's struggling with the other half of the story, which is that she would be a mother of nations. That's a step too far. And her laugh of cynicism and her laugh of unbelief gives way to a second laugh of the flesh, this time from the son of the woman she sold down the river. So Abraham and Sarah have been tinkering and messing with a plan and that, that has consequences and ripple effects that ripple down the generations and actually down the millennia. So by Genesis 21, verse eight to 10, Abraham is holding a feast. And he's holding a feast. We don't tend to hold feasts, do we, when our children wean? When our children wean, it's like, yes, you're on solids. Let's hold a feast. We don't tend to do that. This is obviously a tradition in their culture because Abraham is holding a feast because a toddling Isaac, who has just been weaned, he's the pride and joy of his mother and father. But within the household, within Abraham's household, there is an enmity and there is competition and there is friction within the household of Abraham. So let's read. So Genesis 21, verse eight. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she'd born to Abraham, laughing. So Ishmael's laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. 
Ishmael, by this point, is in his mid-teens. He is significantly older than Isaac. So Isaac's just weaned. But Ishmael, up until the birth of Isaac, is the de facto heir in the household. And Abraham's a wealthy guy as well. He's got fighting men. He's got, he's got camels. He's got a whole um, load of land with him, um, people who travel with him. And Ishmael was going to be the heir until Isaac was born. Hagar is looking on as the more experienced mother. So Hagar's been mothering a lot longer than Sarah as well. This is all adding to friction in the household. And we know that Hagar herself in the past has looked upon them with contempt, looked upon Isaac, looked upon Sarah rather with contempt. And you've got to remember that over the past three years, Ishmael and Hagar have watched a 90-year-old woman breastfeeding a baby. And they're now looking at this little baby who's still probably toddling around. He's probably weaned about three or four. He's probably got a messy face. And they're thinking, this? The child of promise? The one we've all been waiting for? This little one? Is this who we're all meant to be following? Is this the one who's the child of promise? Sarah is furious at the laugh. She's angry at the laugh. And she responds with characteristic anger, actually, to the mockery. And she demands that Hagar and Ishmael be cast out. Ishmael's laugh, we're meant to read in the text, is actually one of derision, one of derision and contempt. So there's friction in this household. There's the child of promise and then there's the child of Hagar as well. We've got Isaac and Ishmael growing up together and it's a problematic household. Now, my grandfather, some of you might know him, he was part of this church for many years, Dan James. Um, he actually grew up as the oldest child of the mistress. So my great-grandfather was a gambler and a chronic philanderer. At one point, there were four Mrs. Jameses. There were three, in 1939, when war broke out, there were three Mrs. Jameses, two in Lewisham, one in Cornwall, and the one in the hotel room next door in Cornwall was about to become the next Mrs. James. He had multiple wives, multiple families. And he left, my great-grandfather left a trail of sin and brokenness behind him. And when my grandpa became a Christian, he overcame, as he, or God overcame in his life, lifelong feelings of illegitimacy and shame. And God changed my whole family tree. My husband, actually this morning, my husband Andrew is preaching. He's not here this morning because he's preaching in Catford. And he's preaching from a lectern and he's preaching on a stage in an auditorium that is built on the land that my great-grandfather owned. And he sold, his, he sold his land to a church. You can see it in the deeds, Mr. James signing over the land. And it's just another way that he has changed the whole story of my family because he takes people and he changes whole family trees. So while Sarah, in this story, while Sarah, the wife, responds with characteristic hard line, to the son of the mistress and orders that she be cast out. God, how does he respond? He responds with characteristic grace and patience to these fleshly laughs. When Sarah laughed, that first fleshly laugh when she was given the promise, God didn't remove the promise. And when Ishmael laughs in this text, he reassures Abraham, I will make a nation of him too. And when Hagar begs God that she would not look on the death of a child in the wilderness, God causes a well of water 
to appear. Because God is traveling before Abraham and Sarah, making a way for them, but he's also traveling behind them. And he's showing grace to the people and the situations that are only there because of sometimes their lack of faith. So how do these laughs of the flesh, these two laughs of the flesh, Sarah's and Ishmael's, how do they give way to a laugh of the spirit in Sarah when she laughs at the birth of Isaac? And what does a laugh of the spirit look like? You see, Sarah's first laugh is more of a cackle. It's one of cynicism, self-protection, and probably disbelief. She's, her second laugh that she makes is one of delight and awe and wonder at all God can do. She says, if we have verse seven up, she says, God has made laughter for me. And when she says, God has made laughter for me, it's actually really literal. If you remember, Isaac's name means laughter. God has made laughter, has made Isaac, has made laughter for me. And this gift of laughter has grown for nine months inside of me. And now this gift of laughter is here and come into the world. God has made laughter for me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in this old age. So laughter's here where Sarah's been the butt of the joke for years and years, meant to be the mother of nations, no baby. Suddenly laughter has arrived. And she's saying, now the people around me will laugh along with me. Rather than laughing at me, they will laugh along with me at all God is able to do. Nothing is too difficult for him. So it's a laugh of the spirit, not of the laugh of the flesh. It's a laugh filled with wonder at what God can do. Remember when God said to Abraham and Sarah, he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the word hard is, can also be translated wonder. So is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Sarah's laughing because she's realised nothing is too wonderful for him. Sarah's laughing because she's filled with wonder at the very, very hard things that God can do in his people. So when we truly grasp, when we really get it, when we get the gospel, we laugh with wonder at what God can do. We're transformed by grace. And we laugh over our shoulder. We can laugh at all that he's done before. You see, if you don't think that it's slightly, faintly comic that God saved you, then you probably haven't grasped your own salvation fully. God saved you, and that's actually quite funny. And as we're transformed by grace, though, we can laugh. We can do a laugh of the Spirit like Sarah, where we laugh over our shoulder, but we can also laugh ahead. We can laugh at the days to come. Proverbs 31 calls us to be people who laugh at the days to come. Don't you want to partner with God in that? In your sanctification, what a beautiful gift of sanctification. He's saying, I'm going to make you more like Jesus. And one way I'm going to do that is you're going to come, become people who laugh at the days to come. Rather than shaking in your boots, rather than being filled with dread, he's saying, have a giggle, have a laugh, laugh at what I will do. Let's partner with him in that. You see, there's a laugh of confidence when the Christian looks at their situation through eyes of faith and not fear and wonders what good thing God will do. See, George Mueller in Bristol took in hundreds of orphans and he became responsible for their livelihood. And George Mueller was a man of faith. 
except the problem was he had this, taken on this enormous responsibility, some of the most vulnerable children in the UK, in his care, and there was no food left, and there was no water left. Now, George Miller, how does he respond to this? There's a famous quote where he turns to one of the hungry orphans, and he says, come here, come here. And he says, come, see what our father will do. He's got that anticipation, ability to laugh at the days ahead, only for a baker to get woken up in the night and a milk cart to break down directly outside of the orphanage, meaning everyone has bread, everyone has milk. There's a humour, you see, there's a humour to walking with God. There's a lightness to walking with God and laughing at yourself when you get it wrong. Don't you want to be people like that who go, oh, there's grace, there's mercy again, I'll move on. I won't major on it, I won't second guess it, I won't look over my shoulder. I will become somebody who laughs at the days to come. There's actually a confidence in God's grace rather than our own ability. And it would be, an, it'd be very easy at this point, Tim Keller makes this lovely point, where he says it's really easy when we look at the story of Abraham and Sarah, we look at the birth of Isaac, the easy application to bring at this point is to say, all you have to do is be like Sarah. Wait, pray, trust, and then the thing you most want will come to you. That's the easy application at this point. Except Sarah didn't wait. She didn't always pray. She didn't always trust. Isaac was a gift of grace to Sarah. He was not a prize for her good behavior. He was a gift of grace. And the point of this story, actually, it's great in the Bible when we see infertility healed and we see babies born. But the point of this story actually isn't one of overcoming infertility or of getting the thing you most want. Isaac, this baby, is a signpost because a baby on its own, you know those babies we dedicated this morning and we looked at on the screen, a baby on its own will not meet your deepest need. It will not meet your deepest need. Or at least this one won't. This baby will not meet your deepest need. The reason Isaac is a baby of promise is because one of his descendants, his great, 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 great grandson, will cause the whole earth to break out in laughter and singing. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection will meet your deepest need. That is the baby that meets your deepest need. And his mother, the mother of Jesus, becomes the true and better Sarah. She responds to the promise that comes to her, a costly promise that comes to her with words of faith and not fear. And she says, let it be according to your word. Let it be just as you said. And she promptly, Mary promptly bursts into song. And this song isn't a dirge. This is a song with a smile. This is a song with a laugh. And within weeks of being conceived, Jesus in the womb is bringing joy. Do you know when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Jesus inside her womb is the size of a full stop. So just imagine for a moment, Jesus is the size of a full stop in Mary's womb. And Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and Jesus' cousin who is growing inside of the womb of Elizabeth and who probably weighs about two pounds, it's a 24 week old baby inside Elizabeth's womb. And full stop Jesus makes two pound John leap for joy within his womb. 
So this is, he's not even been born yet and he's bringing laughter and he's bringing joy because he, Jesus, is the true son of promise. And on being born, angels start singing in the sky and an old man in a temple named Simeon holds him and says, now I can die happy because my eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. So that's got us to eight days old. It's got us to eight days old and we haven't got to water into wine. We haven't got into the ministry of Jesus. We haven't got into the empty tomb. Already he's turning mourning to dancing. This is the Jesus, the full stop Jesus, who makes the two pound John leap for joy. Okay. He himself, only him, only him, only he, only he turns mourning to dancing. Okay. Only he turns shame to gladness. He is the gift. He himself, this is the son of promise. He himself is the gift. You see, if we can have the band up, come up. Your salvation, you becoming a Christian, if you're a Christian in this room today, is a much bigger miracle than a 90-year-old woman giving birth. Yeah? It's a much bigger miracle than a 100-year-old man fathering a child. It's bigger even than the miracle of overcoming infertility. Okay, it's bigger than the miracle of receiving the thing you've most been praying for. He himself is the gift and your salvation is the pearl of great price. So what will your response to your salvation be? What will your laugh be? Will it be a laugh of cynicism? Can that really happen? Yes, that's too hard for God. Or will it be a laugh of faith? Will you laugh at the days to come? and say, look what he's done. You see, the rest of your life, at the moment, you might have walked into church this morning, and in the rest of your life, there might not be loads to laugh at. There might not be lots to smile about in the rest of your life, but laugh at this. He has hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and he has revealed them to you. Can we stand together? You see, Abraham and Sarah were people who were picked from obscurity, they were taken out of the land of Ur, they were picked from obscurity, and they were given a son of promise. And you, if you have put your faith in Jesus this morning, you are a person that has been picked from obscurity, and it's not based on your good behavior, you have been picked, and he has given you, or he is offering you today, a son of promise. The son of promise, the only son of promise, who turns mourning into dancing, and turns your shame into gladness. Laugh along at that, laugh along with him. Let's worship him together. Let's praise and worship this son of promise who meets our deepest need.